We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me wanna. When you look at a guy like DK, he does a select few things at an elite level, but all of them are very valuable. He can accelerate and separate himself on vertical routes, he can outjump people on 50-50 balls, and he can use his strength to dominate body position on in-breaking routes. Does he have pretty bad lateral quickness, and is he likely not going to be great at running double moves or laterally intensive routes like pivots and post corners? Yeah, of course, and his three-cone time indicated that rather plainly. But even with that in consideration, when he's already so damn good at everything else, why should I care that he can't run a pivot route? I'm not drafting him to run a pivot route. I'm drafting him to run the things that actually fit his skill set. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Rock Pile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was tonight's guest, Brett Coleman, talking about DK Metcalf. Chris, I don't want him. There's been so much debate about this guy that we couldn't not talk about it. I mean, it's it's going to be. <laughs> I mean, we're going to break, folks. We have a packed show for you tonight. We are going to be breaking down the tight end and wide receiver position groups in this upcoming draft with, with uh, Brett Coleman, with analyst Brett Coleman. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, but first, before we get this show up off the ground, I feel like there's something that we haven't talked about on this show yet in our three years that I have to just get out there. Because Monday, something something was brought to my attention that really stopped me, okay? Stopped me and gave me pause. A photo popped up on my Facebook Monday, and it was one of those Facebook memories, Bring back an old picture or post of yours from years ago that it's supposed to remind you of, hey, cheer up. Remember this shit that happened to you five years ago that you might have enjoyed or maybe didn't? (laughs) Well, mine was five years old and it fits that bill. It was 2014. I was working the night shift, sitting at my desk, just killing time, working for this shitty little mortgage servicing company that collapsed a few months after I left. My phone rang, and it was my buddy Travis telling me that Ralph Wilson had just passed away. I mean, I, 
I didn't know what to say. We'd, we had talked about it for weeks, years, knowing that it was coming. I mean, Chris, he was an elderly man. <laughs> he was an elderly man in poor health, so much so that I used to question, whenever you'd see him riding around training camp in a golf cart, it's like, why isn't he in a bubble? A sti- Who knows what a stiff breeze might do to this guy? Why isn't he indoors? And here it happened. And all the questions and the uncertainties and the what-ifs about the future of this thing that we were all so attracted to, this thing that we loved, you had you were immediately confronted with it. Chris, where were you when you found out that Ralph Wilson had passed away? I was uh, driving in my car listening to Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh my God! No, I, I don't remember where I was or how I how I found out or who told me. Okay, well, I I vividly remember my experience. Now, for those of you, Travis Trelone, brother of Greg Trelone, friend of the show and Buffalo Bills flag holder, he called me and he tells me this, and I didn't know what to do. I was distraught. I was upset, and I hated my job. <laughs> I hated that fucking place. So I left work early and he met me at my apartment and we really didn't know what to do, but we knew we had to do something other than pace around my apartment and just drink and be nervous about the situation. So we did what any reasonable people in that circumstance would do, Chris. We went to Nice Ash Cigar, picked up a couple $18 sticks, a six pack of Labatt Blue Tallboys and started driving towards Orchard Park, New York. We parked over near Hammer's lot, and with our six-pack, we walked across the parking lot, just talking about everything. Talking, you know, We stood where the Bills store currently stands today, drinking a six-pack of tall boys. And this security guard in his 50s kind of pulls up in one of those Durango-looking trucks with the light bar on top, and he asks us what we're doing. And we just explain to him. We're just here because we heard the news about Ralph dying and we didn't really know where else to go. I mean, here we are, New Era Field, standing in the parking lot. It's probably about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. Two guys smoking cigars, drinking beer in the parking lot. I just explained to them, this is it. I, I literally didn't know what to do, so we're here now. And I don't know if it was because I was still wearing my dress clothes from work. (laughs) Or <laughs> just because of everything that had happened. Maybe Travis's stupid curly hair. I mean, the guy's, he's got like boy band kind of looks to him. So I don't know if it was his man prettiness and my dress clothes. But he, I don't know if he thought maybe we were harmless. But he stayed and he shot the shit with us for almost an hour. And we talked for a while about all the years he'd been working for the Bills. And about how no one was really sure what was going to happen, but that he, if this whole thing was over tomorrow, he'd enjoyed the time and he'd met some great people in the process. So Travis and I, he left and we finished our beers and we started walking back to the car and I was thinking about it. Travis and I met and became friends because him and his friends were dumb enough to have a conversation at a bar, a table away from mine. About how they, we, the Bills had to re, they, they were having a debate over having to re-sign Jarius Bird. And I was seven double vodka and tonics deep. 
Hey, you can't have Bill's talk around drunk Drew Gear. Chris knows that. <laughs> no, I've seen I've seen you. I've like seen, a bull in a china shop. <laughs> I've seen you before at uh, right after I got uh, divorced. We went to a Bandits game because I still had season tickets, and it was it was literally around now. I remember it being March Madness. And after the game, we walked over to 716, and you literally had, I think, four conversations with different people all along the bar. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you have social skills. And at the same time, that was the moment we became friends. And we started talking about all the tailgates and the early mornings and the late nights with people that all just seemed to revolve around this thing, this, this team, this thing that we all love and we congregate around. And then it started to snow. I mean, I'm talking about light snowfall like some kind of a Disney movie. I mean, I cried. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I remember taking pictures of the stadium, which was still painted white at the time. And I recall that we stayed there in that parking lot all night and we finished our cigars, even though it was cold out. And we stayed up for the rest of the night, bar hopping and buying shots for anybody who had Bill's gear on that night. So when that photo of the stadium with the snowfall popped up on my timeline for Facebook, it just made me think about Ralph Wilson that night and just how love him or hate him, how much we as fans owe him. <laughs> is just fans of the team, people of this community. It's because of him that we have this thing, this thing that brings us all together, the thing that I've met so many of you through. I mean, Mike Crow. I talk to Mike Crow pretty often. He's a listener of the show. We've got listeners from Portugal, okay, who I talk to again. We've got guys, Mike Swenson out in Australia. I I love it. I watch rugby now because of him, and he and I shoot the shit at 3.30 in the morning on Saturdays. I wouldn't have any of those connections if it wasn't for this football team. And for those of you listening to the show who haven't met me yet, I'm sure we'll run into each other and have a beer at some point, right? I mean, Chris, isn't that kind? Of- yeah, I mean, I love waking up at, to go to work at five thirty, and then there's just a slew of messages on our Twitter DMs <laughs> from Australia. I love waking up to that, guys. We're all here. We have this thing that we all rally around that brings us together as friends. It brings us together as family, as a community, okay, because of Ralph Wilson. He passed away Monday five years ago. And it's a five-year anniversary of the man's passing. There's a statue out in front of the stadium that I try to once a year just stop by. I don't take pictures. I don't say anything. I just want to stop by. I want to look at it, take a couple sips of my beer, and head into the game. But I get a little misty-eyed every single time because I think about that night. Okay, It's because of him that we have all this, that Chris and I have this show, that we're all here and you're all here listening to us. So I wanted to start this show off with a toast to Ralph. Ralph, here's to you, pal. Godspeed, sir. Woo! All right. Now I'm fired up, Chris. Let, let's jump right into the Bills News Update. Do I have to go get Kleenex? No, fuck you. Get out of here. No, especially not for this. Folks, if anyone thinks I'm upset about this, you can all go fuck yourselves. As all great empires inevitably do, the NFL's version of Rome has crumbled just a little bit farther. 
avid Bud Light drinker and longtime pain in the Buffalo Bills ass Rob Gronkowski has announced his retirement from football on Instagram. Because apparently that's the millennial version of a press conference. Chris, where were you when you found out about the Gronkowski announcement? Hopefully you remember more so than good old Ralph. Uh, I think I... I think I did see it on Instagram. I'm a pretty active Instagram user uh, at the Rock Pile Report if you want to follow me. But and I also think Hicksonbaugh messaged me that Gronk was retiring. But I mean, Hicksonbaugh—he's another guy that we wouldn't have if it wasn't for Ralph. I would never know this guy. Exactly. These are people who have all brought things to my life because of him. Unlike Rob Gronkowski, who has brought nothing to my life except for suckage. Yeah. Well, I saw that and I just. My heart went out to all of the people that bounce on Chippewa and Allen Street. <laughs> you got one of the best bouncers coming for your job. So I feel bad for those people. Some good men are going to lose their jobs on Allen and Chippewa. Summer's right around the corner. Folks, I was at a bar with my wife and one of her college friends on Sunday for the UB game. And that's when the announcement came down that Rob Gronkowski had announced his retirement from football. And I immediately looked around the room for somebody to celebrate with. I was like, Jesus Christ, who, where? No, no, my wife and her friend aren't going to cut it because they, 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 they don't care the way I care. The only person in the room I can find to connect with over this, some 50-ish year old man wearing a Bills hat. That's it. So I walked up to him, didn't even tell him my name, just asked him, what are you doing a shot of? And he asked why. I said, Gronk is retired. What are you doing a shot of? His response caught me completely off guard. He goes, oh, come the fuck on. Really? His reasoning was hilarious. He goes, I own fucking property down on Sunset Bay by the water. I can't imagine what having that douche down there mucking it up is going to do to my fucking property value. Damn it. He punched the bar, and I laughed my balls off. I mean, it's crazy to think. <laughs> it's crazy to think that the Gronkowski era is at an end. But it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Chris, think about it. I'm 33 years old right now, going to be 34 next month on the 23rd. Outside of broken fingers, broken toes, and a fractured shin, I've never broken a bone, like a major bone. Much less suffered an injury so catastrophic that I had to go under the knife. I've never had op- open surgery of any kind. Have you? Mm-hmm. When I was, uh, I mean, I mean, this is just from birth, but I mean, many, many of you guys probably don't even know this. I have a hearing loss in my right ear. I can't hear normal talking, conversational tones out of my right ear. I had two or three surgeries when I was little. That's about it. Outside of my shoulder injury from hockey last February. That's all I've had. Okay. Let, Chris, I want you to scroll down here. Tell the people what it is you're looking at. It's a, you I, have, made, I made Chris a chart. Yeah, you have a chart that total 13 injuries and 10 surgeries. I charted all of Gronk's injuries over the years, going back to his college days to his final year as a pro. Back injuries, hip injuries, knees, arms and shoulders, concussions. He had 13 injuries and underwent 10 surgeries. 
four of them related to his broken arm, three back surgeries. Chris, I know people who have had one back surgery, and they can't run. They actually can't run faster than a jog. And that's not that's not including 255-pound men smashing them in the spine on a weekly basis. I mean, is anyone shocked after hearing that? Or after considering that the guy has two Super Bowl rings, 53 million in total earnings, half a dozen lucrative sponsorship agreements, and Chris, at least a shot at a John Cena-esque kind of a pivot to what, acting or even to the WWE, which is essentially acting. I mean, at the age of 29, this guy's going to be lucky if when we're both in our 50s, I can't outrun him. That's how, I mean, just his injury history is a mess. Under the knife 10 different times. I've got some mixed emotions about all this, Chris. How do you feel? Knowing that we're not going to see, well, that's the worst part. You don't even know because even his agent's like, well, I'll smarmy. Well, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if Rob decides that he's going to come back. That wouldn't, yeah, that wouldn't shock me if he just says this now. Because he's an idiot. So we don't have to do, so he doesn't. He's dumb enough to pass up all of these wonderful things that he has going for him. Well, I was just, you could be an actor. You could go, you, you could still have sponsorship agreements. I mean, look at Shaq. Shaq has not played basketball in, what, 20 years? He's still out there getting money from, what, the general insurance? <laughs> sure, I was just... I was just going to say that uh, now you made me lose my train of thought. Thank you. I can't, I don't remember what I was going to say. Well, you should focus on podcasting and not your stupid hair. Maybe that wouldn't happen to you. <laughs> so with that said, I mean, Chris, when you think about the fact that we're, we won't see Rob Gronkowski in a Patriots jersey, most likely this next season. He may come back at some point late in the year to try to help the Patriots if he feels so compelled. Oh, that's what it was. He could he could be just saying it this so he don't have to go to OTAs. He don't have to go to training camp. He can do that thing like late August. I'm coming back just so he don't have to do all that work. Even if he's not, who gives a fuck? I mean, first of all, I, mean, I guess that's my standpoint. Who gives a fuck? First of all, there's the part of me that appreciates what Rob Gronkowski has brought to the NFL in his eight seasons. Five double-digit touchdown years. Five Pro Bowl and four All-Pro nominations. Four 1,000-yard seasons, which is fucking crazy because he's a tight end. He's not a wide receiver. Chris, 7,861 career yards means that he has more receiving yards than all but two Buffalo Bills receivers ever. Andre Reid and Eric Moltz. That's a tight end. We're talking about. Isn't that a little bit impressive? Well, considering he's got Brady as his quarterback. <laughs> well, the system, Brady, I get it. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I can respect the numbers. I mean, I, I don't know if I buy all this talk about him revolutionizing the tight end position. Because athletic tight ends that both caught passes and blocked, they, they were around well before him. Tony Gonzalez was one of them. And he'll probably, in my mind... Be one of the greats. But Gronk will always be the name. Think about it, Chris. Years from now, when people are talking about who's the prototype tight end in the draft in 2017, 
you know, 2017, Jesus Christ. Let's, let's talk about 2071. They're going to be talking about, oh, wow, this guy's no Gronkowski, but he's a good tight end. Or, hey, this guy has the upshot of Gronkowski. Yeah, he's he gonna, has he's set the named. bar. Yeah. Now, a lot of that stems from playing with a Hall of Fame quarterback, with a Hall of Fame coach. Yep, system definitely plays a huge part. But he played the snaps and he caught the balls. I won't begrudge him any of that. Also, fuck this game. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm sorry. I hate what he's done to my team. I'm jaded. I'll admit it. Think about it. His career versus Buffalo, Chris, 13 wins, over 1,000 total yards against our team alone, more than any other division opponent, 71 yards per game on average, six 100-yard games, (laughs) six of them, and 15 total touchdowns against the Buffalo Bills. Now, I don't know if that speaks to the fact that we couldn't draft safeties and couldn't find linebackers to take him out of the equation, but he decimated our team. Those are incredible stats. You can't, we couldn't find any of the linebackers, safety corners. We couldn't find anybody to cover him. I mean, guess if I'm being transparent, I'm not happy. I'm ecstatic about the fact that he's gone. I mean, a massive weapon that Tom Brady has relied on to fuck our team over week after week after week is gone. Anything that makes that guy's life harder is a positive in my eyes. I mean, if you told me Tom Brady got a speeding ticket, I would probably buy everybody around at happy hour. That's how much I hate that guy. Secondly, as I, Chris, I just ran it down. He's made our lives as Bills fans hell. Gronkowski has victimized this team. He has 200 more total receiving yards against our team than any other team in the division for his career. More touchdowns and the same number of 100-yard games combined. Combined! If you've listened to the national radio, Boston media, whatever else is out there, I'm sure everyone is singing the guy's praises. I've seen rumors that our own local media, I mean, I don't follow WGR 550, but they're getting in on the whole, quote-unquote, you have to respect Gronk train. Singing his accolades. My response to that is, the fuck I do. Okay? One thing that bothers me personally, it's faux appreciation of a person once their time is finished. It's like when somebody who accomplished a lot of things professionally but was a dick to everyone they knew, passes away, and yet everybody shows up to their wake and just keeps talking about what a quote-unquote good man the guy was. I mean, Chris, my grandfather's wake. One of the, it was a life-changing moment for me because I realized that's the type of guy I want to be. My former gym teacher, Brad Ring, my grandfather was part of the Freemasons. (laughs) Take from that what you will. They came and Brad Ring read my grandfather's eulogy. And part of it was talking about how Walt was never an easy man, but you always knew where you stood with him. Nobody who showed up that day would ever tell you that my grandfather was a saint, but that's not, but, but that wouldn't have been true. So they wouldn't have said it. I mean, I, I'm not into this idea that just because somebody's retiring, or somebody has passed away. You have to sing their accolades because it's right. Oh, well, it's the quote-unquote right thing to do. 
Chris, everybody seems to be praising this guy. And yet it's like, Chris, he's human. He's human like the rest of us. I'm not perfect. You all know that by now. You've heard the stories. And I make, I don't, I don't make any bones about it and I don't hide from it. And neither is Rob Gronkowski. I mean, let's just run back some of the highlights. First of all, do you guys remember the whole, hey, we lost the Super Bowl because, and Rob, Rob Gronkowski was a non-factor because of an injured ankle, but he's dancing in a nightclub two hours later? Anybody remember that back from 2012? This is the same guy who jokingly told, told an auditorium full of people that he'd screw Tim Tebow to take his virginity. He said it in public with a microphone in his hand. This is the guy who created the quote-unquote Gronk party ship where he offered to pay folks to perform sex acts on stage. His 50-year-old, I don't even know how old his father is because he looks like a 30-year-old. He's got the tan and the hair of a 30-year-old, maybe the pecs of a 35-year-old, and the skin of an old catcher's mitt, who was caught multiple times flexing shirtless on underage women like a geriatric Fonzie. He's an idiot. Comes from upbringing. Parents are probably idiots too. I mean, I can only assume that on this on this boat ride, hundreds of gallons of Red Bull vodka and Fireball whiskey were dispensed. All while being surrounded by 1,500 people who didn't even know that was going to be happening on their cruise and unwill- unwittingly got thrown into frat boy hell. Chris, and then his cheap shot on Trey White. Yeah, that, that's this still, is that's the type of person we're talking me. about here. So wait a minute. While everybody's patting this guy on the back and saying, oh, well, Rob Gronkowski, what a career. What, a, what an exemplary tight end. No, he's a fucking dirtbag. He's a guy who took the cheapest of cheap shots at a guy who he outweighs by almost 75 pounds. Chris, I don't respect that. Not in the least. No, it's a total dick move by uh, by Kronk in that game. I mean, are we obligated to gush now that this <laughs> now that this asshole has decided to retire? No, I'm glad he's out. There's another weapon for Brady down. Maybe we'll still up. Maybe we'll have a chance next year against the Pats. Probably not. But. Hilariously enough, I don't have the animosity towards Tom towards him that I have towards Tom Brady. But I end up in the same place. And I guarantee you it's going to sound the same when Brady retires. Yes, I understand that statistically you set the bar. You're great. You're all of these things. And that you're retiring. But at the same time, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a fuck that you know, all the Patriots are losing a weapon. Nah, that I mean, yeah, it, it, it makes me happy. But I guess I just end up at a very meh place of it. I mean, think about it, Chris. What? Rob Gronkowski's going to go from cashing NFL checks to cashing WWE checks. He's going to be he's going to have more sponsors. He's going to have whatever. His manager Brent is going to keep buying Patagonia vests in every single pastel color that fucking exists. Fuck that guy. I, I just I can't I can't care less about this. Goodbye and don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out, folks. This seems like a natural point to pivot off of. I'm sorry I've beat this to death, but fuck that guy. I'm done talking about him and I'm glad. I hope that he doesn't come back. Fuck him, Andrew Rosenhaus, and his Patagonia wearing manager. I've had enough. 
I don't know if you guys have noticed, but when you look at the Buffalo Bills roster on the other side of things... We don't have a tight end? Our tight end and wide receiver groups, (laughs) they weren't very good last year. Chris, might that go down as understatement of the year? Probably. We were bad. So with that said, the Buffalo Bills have an opportunity in front of them. As we head into the draft with a lot of capital at our disposal and a need for some truly dynamic playmakers on offense. And so without further ado, guys, we are going to kick off the 2019 NFL Draft Preview Series here at the Rock Pile Report with the tight ends and wide receivers. Brett Coleman. I don't know what inferior swill this is, but I ordered a Lagavula. The Film Room. Take a sip. It's not smoky at all. YouTube.com slash Brett Coleman. Yeah, it's Lagavula. Come on. That's not Lagavula. Coleman, how are you doing this evening, sir? I I literally cannot imagine a better intro. <laughs> are you enjoying a glass of Lagavulin right now? Uh, well, it's four fifteen. I'm about to drive, uh, and my wife's coming home, and I really don't want her to see me naked on the floor with an empty whiskey glass in my hand. So probably not, but uh, <laughs> I will enjoy one tonight as I wrap up uh, editing my Dwayne Haskins episode. Fantastic. Brett, thank you so much. You've been an invaluable resource for us to plug throughout the course of our draft evaluations, but both last year and this year. I mean, it's great to have you back on the show. I mean, he's the guest so nice we had to do it twice. I mean, we had to have him back here. I, I mean, you, you spend so much time evaluating prospects and going over film and looking at different people that these two positions, I mean, I felt like it was important to get somebody in here who could really speak to you know the different dynamic players that fit these two positions because they might be the two spots where the Bills roster is the weakest. I mean, Bills fans ha- have been clamoring for us to talk about this. We get tweets. We, I get Facebook messages, emails. Everyone wants to know, well, when are you guys going to talk about this? So without further ado, I want to start off with the tight end position. Okay. Tight ends are funny. I mean, they're multi, it's a multifaceted position because the great ones are a Swiss Army knife. You know, we just, we just got done talking about Rob Gronkowski and just about his career and about how he was utilized and what he did and all the accolades. And yes, guys like that are hard to find, but then you look at the Travis Kelseys and the, you know, who, Butch Rolls, Pete Metzelars, Jay <laughs> Reimersma. I don't know about that. <laughs> But a great tight end can bring a dynamic to an offense that really can become a game changer. I mean, you see what Travis Kelsey's doing in uh, Kansas City or what they do with Zach Ertz in the Eagles offense. So when you think about the tight end position, how important is it overall to have a good tight end? I think it really does. It, it just kind of depends on what system you're running because different coaches kind of prioritize tight ends differently. Uh, you look at the old Mike Martz system, whether it's Chicago or, or you know, it, with the Rams, like they didn't really use the tight end at all. You know, they, they prioritized wide receivers. They prioritized running backs, which is fine. But that's kind of the opposite velocity to, say, the Shanahan or Gruden tree, which uses tight ends all the time. And we've seen guys like uh, Shannon Sharp, uh, Owen Daniels. Now it's George Kittle. Um, you know, when, when you're running that zone run game and, and you got the, the tight end on the deep over leaking out the backside, you hit him on a bootleg. There's miles of green grass in front of him. Like we wonder why George Kittle led all tight ends in yards mm-hmm. after catch. It's because the system is designed for him to lead the league in yards after catch. 
Uh, and then you got the, the, the reed trees, you know, the Andy Reed trees, where both an eagle uh, with the Eagles and with the Chiefs, where they both have two dynamic tight ends that they use essentially as kind of big slot receivers, where they, they kind of get these safeties down in the slot on them. They'll play inside leverage because they want to stop the slant, and then all of a sudden they stem it out for a corner route where you just kind of throw the ball high and outside, and it's a 6'6 guy against a 5'11 guy, and what are they going to do to stop it? So different teams use tight ends in different ways, whether it's you know different route trees. Uh, shoot, even looking at Gronk last year in a very tight end friendly offense, just because he couldn't run anymore, they didn't really use him the same way. They used him more as a blocker. So it really does vary from team to team. When I look at, at Buffalo specifically, because they have a young quarterback, you know, the old saying is tight ends are a young quarterback's best friend. I think they just need a guy who can really post up people over the middle and give Josh a really quick outlet where if he gets into trouble with a subpar offensive line, if you could just kind of throw a ball high and inside over the middle where a big six, five guy can go get it, that's going to help him out immensely. And so to me, that's a big priority in the draft. I don't know if they're going to be able to get either of the Iowa kids that can really help out in that role, but that would be, it honestly wouldn't be a bad idea for them to do that. See, so when I look at the roster as it currently stands, I mean, it doesn't seem to me like we have somebody who fits that mold. I mean, just breaking it down, I'm looking at total cap allocation right now, $5.3 million. Now, I'm I'm still waiting to see the numbers from Fisher's contract, but we're 24th in tight end spending in the NFL. And if you want to look at how many starters we currently have on the roster, I guess that depends on what your definition of a starter even is. I mean... Right now, the most tenured Buffalo Bill is Jason Kroom, who's an undrafted free agent wide receiver out of Tennessee. Who's He's been learning the tight end position, but he's a terrible inline blocker. I mean, he's he has plus catching ability from his days and time spent as a wide receiver, but you can't ask him to play the edge when you're trying to really have an efficient running game to the outside. You just can't. He's That's not his skill set. Then you look at the two free agents we just signed, both formerly of the Bengals, Tyler Croft and Jake Fisher. In Croft, you've got a veteran presence. He's been useful as a pass catcher and a blocker, but he's a blocker first and foremost. He scored seven touchdowns in 2016, but he's extremely injury prone. So trying to go in saying, hey, he might be my tight end one is a mistake because you don't know how available he's going to be. And then the other guy in your roster right now is Jake Fisher, who is an offensive tackle trying to become a tight end. Which, when's the last time that you heard of a successful offensive tackle to tight end switch? Well, what's interesting is I think he started as a tight end at Oregon, and then I think they converted him. So I think he does have experience at the position. I have no idea what he brings to the table as a receiver. (laughs) So if anything... You know, they, they might just kind of use him as a, a true Y, you know, just kind of an edge blocker. But, you know, my, my, my problems with either Fisher as a tight end or Croft as a tight end are, are pretty much the same thing. Yes, they would give a big body for Josh to kind of hit as, a, as an outlet over the middle, but they wouldn't really be able to do anything after that. Like, you know, if, no. if, you, if, if they catch it at five yards, they're getting a five-yard game. You know? Yeah, Whereas, exactly. There's no separation you know, those, those, skills. There's no separate. So, you know, the big bodies like – Gronk in his prime or you know Kelsey and Ertz or Kittle now like they're big bodies where they can win early on the slant and give that outlet but they can also turn a five-yard gain into a 10 or 15-yard gain they don't really have anybody like that in Buffalo that can do that which is why people are looking at TJ Hawkinson even though ninth overall might be a little bit rich for him the fact that 
A, there's not a lot of really versatile wide tight end prospects that are coming out of college these days, and B, the need at the position, that's why it kind of makes sense. Okay, so you want to talk about things making sense. This is where I get into my, you know, when I think about draft philosophy and how my personal approach to the to the position and what I think makes sense for the Buffalo Bills. I've seen a lot of crazy shit out there on Twitter and on Facebook and in all these different Facebook groups that we kind of, you know, that I can't, I can't even, I, can't, I don't post things in them anymore. <laughs> like, I'll put links to our show. I'll occasionally try to have conversations, but you can't fight the masses, even when you know you have a valid point by comparison to theirs. And one of the craziest themes running through our fan base right now is this idea of taking a tight end with the ninth overall draft pick. Now, tight end, when you're drafting a tight end, it's one of the most inexact sciences that exists in the NFL. The Ravens have drafted five tight ends since 2014, 2015. And yet, as of today, I still don't know that they have a proven elite talent at the position. That's five years worth of draft picks. So just volume, just drafting in volume doesn't guarantee that you're going to net a starting stud tight end. So essentially, you're looking for quality. And everyone just says, okay, well, keep drafting first-round tight ends because that's where all the quality ones are. There is only one tight end drafted in the first round. Now, Gronkowski doesn't count. He's a second rounder that has spent their entire career with the team that drafted him and also made a significant impact. Like I'm talking multiple Pro Bowls. I'm talking, you know, significant contributions on offense. And that's Greg Olson. Okay. You could argue that Vernon Davis and Dallas Clark were great, but they did go on to play for other teams. Eventually, their teams had to move on from him. In the meantime, Eifert, uh, what is it, uh, Gresham, Jermaine Gresham, Eric Ebron. Dustin Keller, Brandon Pettigrew, these, these, none of these players were quote-unquote busts, but they all got taken in the first round, and none of them really amounted to anything impactful, not, not nearly where their teams thought they were. I mean, am, am I crazy to kind of hate that trend? I think, and that's what's interesting is you make that point about, you know, these day two tight ends, Gronk, Kelsey, um, Ertz, I think, was also a day two guy. Actually, Kelsey might have been a fourth rounder now that I think about it. Um, you know, uh, and Gronk should have been a first rounder, but injury issues pushing on the second. I, I get that, but it's kind of interesting how teams are drafting tight ends early to chase the mismatches uh, and the mismatch potential and the production of all these tight ends that originally were drafted on day two or later. You know, they're chasing the production of the Delaney Walkers of the world, even though Delaney Walker was a, a later round pick. And so, I, I understand the point of we shouldn't draft TJ Hawkinson early because drafting a tight end early is a waste. I agree with that. But at the same time, if they traded down and maybe if there there was a team that was really desperate for an edge rusher or an offensive tackle that Buffalo just didn't want for even though they need both of those, let's say they just didn't, (laughs) let's just say they didn't like any of the options at ninth Mm -hmm. overall. They're like, okay, we want to get some value. You know, we got to fill out the roster. We need to build depth. Um, you know, let's trade down a little bit because we think we can still get a tight end. Like, would you be okay with a tight end maybe in the late teens? I I personally wouldn't hate it if it means, like, I'm getting TJ Hawkinson and a third rounder or and a second rounder out of it. Like, that's, that's to me, a, a, a good value because I can get an impact tight end, potentially. And also maybe another impact corner or impact receiver or depth tackle. You know, that's that's the kind of the package I'm looking at. 
Well, and I, I can understand that. And I guess when I, I, for me though, I just look at the broader picture. I mean, we talk about all the time how wide receivers, I mean, because ultimately that's what we're talking about for this Buffalo Bills group. You can go out and you can find a blocking tight end somewhere. You can find those types of guys in free agency who will come in and they'll be average. Average blockers. I mean, nobody goes out and spends high draft capital on a guy whose only purpose is blocking. You wouldn't do that. But so you expect that in a three to four year window, these wide receivers and tight ends that you're drafting are going to develop into eventual starters. That's the hope. So I look back at the 2015 tight end class. (laughs) Max Williams. I don't even know where he is anymore. Uh, Was he a second round draft pick of the Baltimore Ravens? I liked him a lot, too. I know. Everyone (laughs) liked him. Clive Walford, third-round pick. He has now played for four football teams since 2015. A.J. Derby, former Buffalo Bill. Nick O'Leary, baby hands. Okay, refused to wear gloves. Had little tiny, little tiny baby hands. And he, what is he doing? He's floating around the NFL. Is he still with Miami? The only tight end out of the 2015 class that got an extension with the team that drafted him was C.J. Uzuma. That's right, folks. C.J. Uzuma. You're all looking around going, who Who the fuck is that? (laughs) The other Bengals tight end. (laughs) And then, just for those of you out there listening who are a little bit older, here's some Buffalo Bills history that I dug up in all this that made me want to throw up in my own mouth. The last time the Bills drafted a tight end in the first round, his name was Tony Hunter. He was a tight end out of Notre Dame in 1983. Number 12 overall. He finished his Bills career after two seasons, 733 yards and five touchdowns. Since 1983, just we've only as a team drafted one tight end higher than the third round, which is Lonnie Johnson in 1994. But from 67 to 74, the franchise drafted four tight ends, two in the first round and two in the second, and all of them lasted less than two years on the roster. Seriously? Yeah. This is the Buffalo Bills' complicated uh, complicated relationship history with the tight end position. And what, what years was that? So that was from 67 to 74. Okay. And then from 1983 to today, we have one tight end that we've ever drafted higher than the third round. Damn, talk about some freaking scars that they. they Thank <laughs> you. So maybe it's like when, it didn't work out once, and they're like, "Oh, we're never doing that again." So when P exactly. So when people talk about, "Oh, we got to take this first round tight end," I, I I cringe. I cover my eyes. I'm like, "Oh, Jesus Christ! It's another car accident waiting to happen." I, ultimately, we have to do something in this draft at the position because right now, when you look at our position group, we don't have. There's nobody who's a legit number one tight end on any other team in the NFL. If you went roster for roster over the rest of the NFL, I defy you to find a tight end room with less starting experience than ours. So you need and less dynamic talent than ours. So they're inevitably going to have to draft one. The question is, what makes sense? Where and how do you acquire this tight end? So that's why I want to pick your brain about the makeup of this class. I mean, first of all, you've already mentioned two names, uh, Noah Fant and TJ Hawkerson. Are are these guys who are being talked about as one and two, are they really truly worth first-round consideration? Or is it just the talent of the overall class and the other, you know, wide receiver and, you know, offensive line classes around them on that side of the ball that make them more valuable? I I personally do believe they are worth first-round picks. 
like I said earlier, ninth is a little rich. So if I was going to take one of them, I would trade down and try to, you know, sell it to sell it to myself as, oh, I'm getting a starting tight end and, you know, uh, another boundary corner. I'm getting starting tight end and another tackle. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if I would do top 10 just because I can't remember the last time a top 10 on tight end actually worked besides maybe Vernon Davis, maybe. So he got drafted it, one pick before the Buffalo Bills, too. I swear to God, he was going to be our guy if he had fallen to us, and the 49ers took him the to pick before us. Well, remember, Vernon was a. I mean, Vernon's rare even by today's standards. By those standards, back in those days, like <laughs> Vernon was a, a. He was a category one. Well, so, <laughs> in so, in that, so I guess that's my question is when we're talking about Noah Fant and TJ Hawkerson, first and foremost, do either one of those guys represent the kind of talent that you saw in a Vernon Davis? or that you see in a Rob Gronkowski or a guy like that? I mean, what are the pros and cons for each of these players? I I don't think that they're even O.J. Howard level. And O.J. Howard, I, o. Howard is the best tight end that I saw in college since Gronk. And I, I still believe that, you know, if he wasn't injured last year, he was going to have a, a Pro Bowl season. He was well on his way to doing that. He's a phenomenal tight end down in Tampa that, unfortunately, just he hasn't been able to get off the ground yet because of injuries and, you know, playtime and, the system they were in, all that kind of stuff. But uh, neither one of them are as good as OJ was at Bama. Um, but they do have aspects of their game that I really, really like and consider them first-rounders because of those reasons. Uh, Hawkinson, I think, is a true wide tight end that can really boost a run game from the first day he steps on the field. He's a really good route runner, uh, very good at finding soft spots in the zone. So I think he can be that kind of classic... Uh, three down tight end that while he might not be like like the dynamic playmaker of a Kittle or a Kelsey or an Ertz like he he will improve the offense in every single possible phase uh, whereas Fant you look at him he's basically just a big slot receiver um, not a terrible blocker like we're talking we're not talking about like Kobe Fleener mm-hmm. levels of blocking uh, I'd say he's sort of serviceable, but really you're bringing him in because he runs like a deer. He can jump out the gym. He's a, an excellent red zone target. He stretches the seams, and he's a guy that defenses will have to game plan for. Even if he's not the number one option, Like you have to plan for a tight end that's that big and that fast. Like, and if you don't have a linebacker or a safety on the roster that can handle that kind of size and speed, guess what? He's going to pop off. So, again, neither one of them are as complete – a package as Howard or as Vernon when he was coming out of school. Um, but I, I do think that they are valuable in their own right. They have to be on the right team. they got to be in the right situation with the right quarterback, the right system. But if they do go to those right systems and do they and they do have those right coaches that are willing to feature them in their strengths and not kind of expose their weaknesses, they can be Pro Bowl tight ends. If they're going to get that in Buffalo, I don't know, which is why, again, I would take either one of them at nine. But I do think that, you know, if New England's sitting down there at 32 and Noah Fant slips to the mid-20s, we might see them move up a little bit because we know that they know how to use a tight end. So so we know that they're the top of the food chain when it comes to this. When you look at the class as a whole, is there anybody else? Any, any? I mean, because when you think about it, there's two questions I guess I have rem- remaining about this class as, as far as our interests are concerned. You know, when we talked about cornerbacks a few weeks ago, you kind of you said that something that was really interesting to me. That there was only one type of cornerback in this draft. That there was a lot of long, big, physical outside boundary cornerbacks. There wasn't a whole lot of, 
you know, play the slot, small, kind of shifty guys. So when I look at the tight end position, my initial question is, you just described two totally different types of athletes when talking about Noah Fant and T.J. Hawkerson. Is this class more of one type of tight end than the other, or is there a good mix of talents in there? No, you got a little bit of everything. I mean, the third guy on the list, on everybody's list, including mine, is Irv Smith at Bama, who's basically just Delaney Walker, but, you know, 10 years younger. Uh, And so I'm a big fan of him. He's probably going to be a day two guy. I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes the next, you know, quote unquote, day two tight end that outproduces all the day one tight ends, which has seemingly been the trend over the last five to seven years. You know, you you wait till the second or third round, you get a tight end, he produces like a pro bowler. For that, to me, Irv Smith, he can be that kind of guy. He's smaller than both the top two. He's only 6'2", 245-ish, but he's versatile. He's extremely tough as a blocker. Uh, he's very crafty as a route runner. He's sure-handed in traffic. Like, I can't, I can't possibly have a better comparison than Delaney Walker. And Delaney's pretty damn good now. So I, I think there would be a lot of teams that would be willing to, to, to take him if they think that they are getting that kind of player. Uh, then you got, you know, maybe some guys further down the board that you look for is, you know, maybe later round picks, developmental guys like Isaac Nada. Can't really run, but the dude has great hands. He's a good route runner. He's very experienced. He's smart, great at finding soft spots in the zone. So that would kind of be like a... Sounds like a Heath Miller type of tight yeah, end. Where he just yeah, gets out of the soft big, spots of the defense. Yeah. Heath, but, you know, definitely that kind of player. Like okay. he's, he's not like a Pro Bowl tight end, but he's definitely the, the guy that will stick around on your team for seven to eight years and be a fan favorite because he'll, he'll get three catches a game, but all three of them are going to be on third and eleven. So that, that's the kind of guy he is. I, I like him a lot. Um, but, yeah, there's a little bit of everything in this tight end class. It's pretty well-rounded. Okay, well, and that's good to know because we're talking about a team that shouldn't. I say that right now. I firmly believe should not be drafting a tight end in the first two rounds because for as much as you think it's a good idea, to your point, teams have been chasing with high-round draft picks the production of these guys who were drafted in later rounds who then went on to produce like pro bowlers. And unfortunately, when you're chasing and you get behind, you don't win very often. So with that said, final thought here on tight ends before we move on. Potential busts. For every Travis Kelsey, there's at least 15 Max Williams and Brandon Pettigrews. Guys who people fall in love with. They've got the size. They've got the collegiate stats. They've got athleticism through the roof. And then they go on to have extremely mediocre to terrible careers. If there's a couple guys you could point out that you kind of have flagged as watch out for this guy, who would it be? Oh, man. Um, I really go back and forth on Dawson Knox uh, where uh, I'll, I'll watch one game and I'll love him and I'll watch another game and I'll absolutely despise him. And so while I don't want to call him a bust, he's somebody who is a straight up coin flip for me. And I have no idea how I'm grading him yet. Uh, I'm trying to put together all my position rankings right now, and I, I literally don't know where to put him. You know, whether in, if I put him at four or if I put him at like eight or ten. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I, I just, I don't know what, to, I, I haven't got into a lot of the other tight ends. I'm still working on Foster Moreau. I'm still working on uh, that Sternberger kid from A&M. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I really don't know what to think about Knox. No, nah, well, he's a name to watch out for, Bills fans. But now, since we've since we've got a little bit of time, and I, I mean, folks, this is it. This is the reason that most of you are here. I mean, I'm about to come out like I'm uh, like I'm Maximus and Gladiator. Are you not entertained? 
This is not why you are here. We're going to talk about the wide receiver class. Okay? We're here to talk about this year's class of wide receivers. Okay? It starts with our current setup. When you talk about the wide receiver skill sets currently existing on this roster, current cap allocations $22.9 million, which is smack dab right in the middle of the NFL, 16th overall. We have approximately three starters on the roster. Zay Jones, John Brown, and Cole Beasley. I say that because when you look at historically over the last few years, they each played more than 63% of their team's snaps. I mean, Zay Jones had 88, but that doesn't mean anything because he was the best wide receiver in the worst wide receiver core in the NFL. So Zay Jones still developing as a route runner. He's got average speed at best. His best, his best work comes on intermediate routes where he can kind of work to the middle of the field, catch the ball, work upfield for a few extra yards. He's not a, he doesn't have deep speed. He doesn't, he's not elusive. He's a possession receiver. John Brown, deep threat. You know, that's his speed is his primary asset. He's not overly large. He's not overly physical. Cole Beasley. Again, not overly large man, not overly physical, but he's dangerous in the intermediate areas because of his route running. I mean, from our free agency show, we talked about his over 80% reception rate last season, which is one of the highest in the NFL, yet one of the lowest yards per catch in the NFL, underscores the fact that not only does he have reliable hands, but that he runs routes precise enough to get open in the short areas of the field. And that his quarterbacks trusted him enough to catch the ball that they would throw it to him in high traffic areas. So with that, he's a catch-and-run wide receiver, okay? He's not a burner. He's not going to get you a ton. Of, he may get you a ton of yards after the catch, but it's usually because he just you know, busted coverage. That's when you're going to see it from him. Then you got Robert Foster and Isaiah McKenzie. Foster, deep threat, probably the most impactful wide receiver of the 2018 group, but that's not saying much. You know, he's an unproven. Who knows if he can replicate it? I've seen a lot of wide receivers, Chris, have one giant season. And then you don't really hear from him much after that. So it'll be interesting to see if he can replicate that. Isaiah McKenzie's a special teams contributor, and he's a short area wide receiver with suspect hands. And then you look at the rest of the guys. Andre Robert. Okay, he, he's a return specialist who hasn't had 15 catches in a season since 2014. Duke Williams, is he's the guy everybody wanted to talk about because we signed him out of the CFL, and they think he's, you know, Canadian Jesus or something. I, I don't know what's happening here. He, he's a guy who couldn't cut it, couldn't make an NFL roster, and now he's here and who knows what he'll be. Ray Ray McLeod and Cam Phillips are two guys who couldn't make the roster last year. And that's that's essentially where we are as far as their depth chart. So when I look at this, Brett, hearing these descriptions of our current staff, I mean, is it clear that wide receiver is still an obvious need? Uh, one word, yikes. <laughs> Nobody on our wide receiver. We don't have a wide receiver right now on the roster over 6'2". Yeah, that's... Well, lucky for you, this draft class has plenty of them. Uh, I don't know. And it's the same kind of conversation with tight end. It's like they need tight end real bad. They need receiver real bad. But unfortunately, all the positions that, uh, that at least have the better value for them at 9 are not wide receiver and tight end because they still need edge. They still need offensive line depth. They're going to be able to get edge and offensive line depth at ninth overall. Now, they could take Metcalf. They could take Hawkinson. And they fit 
I 100% believe they fit and they would be successful. But are they the best value? I don't know. So when I look at the wide receiver conversation, really what I think of, okay, who's the day two guy they go after? Because I don't think it would be smart to take one day one. Now this is, and and I'll say this, to, to echo your sentiment, and I've been yelling this at anybody who will listen. You look at what the Colts did when they drafted Andrew Luck. They took wide receivers. They took tight ends. They had failed projects on offensive and defensive line. And then you wonder why their team never has, hasn't been to a Super Bowl with a generational quarterback as good as Andrew Luck. Well, it's because they have this insistence on continuing to draft wide receivers and continuing to draft skill positions over building up their trenches. They were atrocious for years because Grigson just fucked that team. They, he fucked their roster and then he got thrown out of town. And Ballard came in and in a handful of drafts fixed it. That's it. Fixed it. Just said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to scout well. I'm going to hit on my picks in the trenches. I'm going to get a good linebacker. I'm going to get some good running backs. And all of a sudden their team was good again. That's what this comes back to is that if you're a team that's not sound in the trenches, you don't know who's a dynamic running back threat for you. I just feel like wide receiver is such a luxury pick. Spending high top 10 capital there. Isn't a good idea. Not in my opinion. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about most recently, the most recent example of this that I can find. Mike Williams for the Chargers and Corey, was it Corey Davis for the Titans? Yeah. Those were two top 10 wide receivers that both went to teams. One of them missed the playoffs and one of them bare, one of them made it in as a wild card, beat the Ravens, but that's not saying much. And then just got whitewashed by the Patriots. And he, re, he had a couple big games. But he has yet to sh- he has yet to show that he's worthwhile of the investment of a top ten pick. I mean, he hasn't revolutionized their offense, which is what I think every Bills fan out there thinks a top ten pick at wide receiver is supposed to do. I mean, am I onto something here? Well, uh, we look back at what was it the twenty fourteen draft class? Let me pull it up right now, which was arguably the greatest wide receiver draft of all time. And uh, I remember I, I put out a tweet a little while ago. So let's look at all the wide receivers that were drafted in the first round of the greatest receiver draft ever. Sammy Watkins, fourth overall. You guys know all about him. He's no longer <laughs> on the team. He's on his third team. Mike Evans, seventh overall. Been phenomenal, but they haven't been to the playoffs. He's the only first-round receiver that's still actually on his original roster. Odell, again, phenomenal. One of the greatest you know first four or five years in receiving history on his second team now because they traded him away they had no team success with him as good as he was Brandon Cooks he's on his third team went to a couple couple Super Bowls but again you know he's he's been really more like a mercenary than a, a team cornerstone Kelvin Benjamin man <laughs> Buffalo is uh, <laughs> Buffalo has a lot of familiarity with these guys he doesn't uh, even have a fucking job right now yeah <laughs> I mean, he's he's basically a, a you know a left tackle at this point. So you know the only first round, let's see, even going to the second round, Marquise Lee, I think I think he's still in Jacksonville. Jordan Matthews, he's bounced around. Paul Richardson, I think he's on his second team. Devonte, that worked out, but he was a day two guy. Um, Allen Robinson, that sort of worked out when he's been healthy. He's on his second team now. Jarvis, he worked out as well. So like really the best the best values out of the greatest receiving class ever, despite all the really good players in the first 32 picks, the best value is on day two. 
See, exactly. But nobody wants to fucking listen to me, which is why you and I are here about to kick off what I've just titled the great DK Metcalf debate of 2019. That's it. That's where the conversation at wide receiver for the 2019 class starts. Okay. DK Metcalf, is he Mike Williams? Is he Megatron? Or is he something in between? Now, folks, if you don't, for those of you out there who haven't already, I know we tweeted it out before, go watch Brett's video. I'm going to post a link to it in the show's description. We're going to give it some more shout outs throughout the course of the podcast because this is his breakdown of DK Metcalf makes you understand why people are high on him. He comes from a bad situation. He comes from a situation where his, I mean, being an SEC fan, I watched Ole Miss, and Ole Miss was a tire fire at the offensive coordinator and quarterback positions. So it's kind of up in the air what his NFL upside could be because you didn't get to see the production at the collegiate level. And a lot of that wasn't exactly his fault. So when we start this off, I guess here's what I want. I want to start with an opening salvo here if I can, Brett. I hate the NFL Combine. I despise it. I think it's one of the worst things that people... They've turned it into a spectacle that people somehow have put more and more stock into. This thing used to happen behind closed doors. Nobody knew anything about it. Nobody cared. You know, maybe it got some things got blurbs made it out into a local newspaper and a couple nerds were reading it. Now it's now it's meaningful television and everyone's glued to it. And the numbers, everyone thinks that the numbers make the man instead of the man making the numbers. Everyone drools over him. I want to read you some combine results. A 4.34 40-yard dash. A 39.5-inch vertical leap. A 6.88-second three-cone drill. A 4.48 20-cone shuttle. Those are pretty solid numbers for a big wide receiver, but those don't belong to DK Metcalf. They belong to notorious Jets bust wide receiver Stephen Hill. I knew it was Stephen Hill. <laughs> as soon as you started reading, I was like, oh, that sounds like Stephen Hill. <laughs> so he got a ton of pre-draft hype. I mean, yes, he went to Georgia Tech. There was all these you know, size and speed and different you know, things that people looked at and said, oh, he could be the next Megatron, which is why the Jets drafted him in the second round. And he made it, I think, to a second contract somewhere in the NFL and then flamed out. Yet at the same time, one of your boys, by comparison, a guy you know very well, 4.5 second 40, only 15 reps in the bench press, a 115 uh, inch, uh, vertic- uh, well, what do you call that, a long jump, and a 4.5 second 20 cone sh- twenty yard shuttle, which is tied with Metcalf. Those are from DeAndre Hopkins, somebody you know who has become one of the most prolific wide receivers in the NFL. I mean, he's top five. Would, would you say I'm right about that? Oh, easily. Regardless of who. The difference being, though, that Nuke had Dabo Sweeney and Taj Boyd. Okay, but think about the shitty quarterback play he's had, and he's still one of the more prolific wide receivers. Anybody who plays fantasy football knows who that guy is, regardless of what terrible quarterback play they get. That's how good he is. Except for Brock Osweiler. Well, yeah, that was terrible. But his number, (laughs) so my point remains the same. You're talking about great combine numbers, all this physicality, but what does it actually mean? I mean, is it safe to say that DK Metcalf is this season's most polarizing prospect? Oh, 100%. Not even close. Like, he is easily the most... You can even go to the comments on that video. 
I mean, people, (laughs) you know, and when I said he is very similar to Calvin Johnson, people said, what the hell are you talking about? (laughs) Look at, look at Calvin's production. Look at this, look at the yada, yada, yada. But we have to contextualize this when we say, oh, well, he didn't produce nearly as much as AJ Brown in the same offense. Duh. AJ Brown was the slot receiver in an offense that was solely designed to get the ball to the slot receiver. Like Metcalf and, to a degree, DeMarcus Lodge on the other side were pretty much just decoys. They ran two routes in the offense, go and curl, and that's it. And so they, they weren't really – they weren't allowed to run slants or posts or, mm-hmm. you know, use their big bodies and speed in ways that the NFL uh, often uses big, fast receivers that are really thick and physical against press coverage. Like, they didn't use Metcalf the way that, you know, Detroit used Megatron or that – Houston uses DeAndre Hopkins, well, even that, though he, he was very much capable of doing it. Well, I think they that's just what didn't I let him do it. That was my favorite takeaway from your video. I guess if I had, if there was something that I wasn't going to fight you on here, it's the the fact that yes, the offense. I watched them; they were terrible. <laughs> I watched. I've watched all. I've watched Ole Miss play Bama for years, and I've watched Ole Miss when they're just on TV because sometimes I just like to watch them get pummeled. I mean, I think the, the one of the chants from Mississippi State where one of my buddies went that I fell in love with was, Rammer, Jammer, Yellow Hammer, we don't give a piss. The only thing we want to cheer is go to hell, Ole Miss. <laughs> I mean, it's so bad in Mississippi State that when the national anthem gets done playing, somebody or 500 somebodies will all scream, go to hell, Ole Miss, at the end of the national anthem. Like, that's, that, that's where they are. And that's what I got used to. To hell with that school. I, I don't know what they're doing. And I definitely agree with you that he was put in a losing situation. Now, when I look at the player, this is where things get dicey for me. Red flags, just right out of the gate. Two NCAA seasons that ended early, a serious neck injury, and a foot injury. Those are two things that is a dynamic wide receiver who might have to, you're talking about avoiding contact. I mean, with the game he has, I don't know how much avoiding contact you're going to be able to do. Second of all, he's got a route tree that I don't think is as polished as you'd like in a top 10 wide receiver. I mean, I think a guy's like Corey Davis. The Titans are regretting that pick because they're, they figured out that, hey, he had all the physical, the physicality from a low level D1 college, D2 college, whatever it was. He made it to the NFL and he has the physical chops, but he doesn't have the polish that you need to come in and make an impact right away, which is what they were expecting. And then he drops some balls. I mean, his drop rate's kind of high, especially for a guy who every, not every Bills fan, but there's a lot of fans out there who keep talking about taking him at number 10. What do you make of those? I mean, are they overblown? So I'll I'll address them one at a time. The injuries, totally valid criticism. Uh, Supposedly, the injuries he did sustain have a low rate of recurrence, but there's a lot of things that that can go wrong when it comes to foot injuries and neck injuries and all that kind of yeah, stuff. So we, don't, we, don't, we know, we don't know about for it. sure that they're not going to come back. You know, like we're not a hundred percent sure that he's never going to, you know, sustain those kind of injuries again. So that's totally valid criticism. I get that. Um, in regards to the route tree, there's a lot of receivers out there that have had an incredible amount of success running essentially half or a third of the route tree. Megatron being one of them. You know, he ran slants, posts, goes, and curls on 75% of his routes. And he was a 
to me at least, a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the most dominant receivers to ever play the position. Injuries got the best of him, which I guess is also kind of another parallel at Metcalf when you think about it. Um, but these are two big, straight-line, physical, fast guys that they don't run the full route tree, but they kind of don't have to because as far as I'm concerned, if if you can get 100 yards a game by dominating on slants, posts, and goes – I don't care if you can't run a whip route. I don't care if you're not super fluid running post corners or deep comebacks or anything like that. Like, if you're good at what you do well and you're in an offense where I can use what you do well and get a lot of production out of it, what you can't do well doesn't really concern me. So when I look at, you know, Brian Dable's offense, like, they don't have a guy with his size and speed combination. They don't have a guy that can dominate on slants, that can go post people up in the red zone, that can burn people deep. Uh, other than, I guess you can consider John Brown a, a deep threat, but he doesn't really have the size, so there's really not as big of a, a window for Allen to hit. Like if you're going to have a four-three receiver, at least I'd rather him be six-two, two-thirty, so there's a little bit of you know breathing room on those deep balls. They don't have a guy like that, and I think they would. I think he would fit very well into what they need. Again, I don't think that they should take him at ninth <laughs> overall because they have bigger things to address. Uh, at least because- we agree on that, sir. Thank you. At least we agree on that. And I guess that's where, so then when we're, if, if we're talking about Metcalf here, you don't think we should take him. You don't think, what do you think is fair value? Take the bills out of the equation for a second. Your big board, if you're constructing one, Knowing what his flaws are, knowing what his strengths are. I mean, obviously his upside is he, he's an, he's a mismatch for defensive backs to the line of scrimmage. You can't press him. His long speed and just his physicality is a must watch for defensive coordinators. His footwork, just the, to the way he operates. I get it. He's got this mountain of upside. What's appropriate value for him? It, it really depends on the team. Because deep threat receivers, their value goes up substantially if you have an offensive line that can protect the quarterback long enough to make those deep routes happen. You know, they they can keep the quarterback upright with enough time for him to actually throw that route. You need to have a quarterback that has the arm and ball placement on deep balls to make those routes worth it. You know, you, you need to, at least to me, philosophically, receiver is a position that can give a huge absolutely monstrous boost to an offense if the offense is already mostly complete like it's it's very much a cherry on top kind of position you got to get the quarterback first and you got to get the offensive line because a receiver can't really do much if his if his quarterback can't hit him on time and accurately and if the quarterback even if it is if even if he is accurate is going to get absolutely slaughtered before he can get the ball out so when i look at buffalo like yeah i love the fit they need a guy like that he would do tremendous things with Josh Allen, but they're not ready to put the cherry on top yet. Like they gotta build everything else first. Uh, they need to give at least some competition to Dawkins. They need some guard help. Uh, they, they need a whole lot of things before they can get to those finishing touches. So, I when you when it comes to where his value is for all teams, not just Buffalo. It really is a team-by-team team thing because not every team in the top 15 picks is what I would call ready to take a wide receiver like him. They're just, they might not be built for it. 
Well, and that's and then that's I guess my larger takeaway, and it, I'm glad it's coming from you and not just me, because now other people out there don't think I'm just some lunatic on my tin roof with a foil hat on, screaming at the moon that we don't need to take this wide receiver. So lightning round, we're gonna burn, we're gonna burn through some of these questions real quickly because I know your time is short. First and foremost, if Metcalf is wide receiver number one. Where do the next, what is the next group of wide receivers and where do they slot in in your mind behind him? Uh, Not that much farther behind, to be honest, because I I like Marquise Brown a lot. Uh, He's totally different than Metcalf in a lot of different ways. He's smaller, definitely a burner, great route runner, can run the full route tree. Um, You got A.J. Brown, who again, not really like Metcalf, and he's more of a big slot. Uh, really tough over the middle. Reminds me a lot of Jarvis Landry. Um, you got Nikhil Harry, who's sort of, uh, I, I guess I would also throw in Hakeem Butler in there. They're sort of like Metcalf in that they're bigger bodies. They're they're they're, lot, they're not as physical as Metcalf against press coverage, so I feel like press would give them a little bit more trouble, but they certainly have the size and speed and body control and all that kind of stuff. And they're both over 6'3". Um, they're 6'4 and 6'5". Yeah, Butler's gigantic, and he's definitely got the speed. He doesn't really... The, the lack of physicality compared to Metcalf is my, my big thing with him. Well, that's, I, I noticed, absolutely. I noticed Hakeem Butler. I went to watch an Iowa State bowl game trying to watch David Montgomery, the running back, because one of my friends won't shut up about him. He keeps talking about how oh, he's not the fastest guy, but he always gets yards. So I'm trying to watch this guy, and instead I'm watching a six foot five wide receiver just dunking on these tiny cornerbacks. It's like, It wasn't even fair. I think he almost had 200 yards receiving in that game. Yeah, he's he's huge, and he will definitely go up and climb the ladder and make all these splash catches. Um, I do wonder when he's out of the Big Twelve and he's playing against <laughs> against real defenses. Yeah, like you know, if you're going up against Stephon Gilmore, Gilmore likes to absolutely maul people at the line of scrimmage because he can. You know, he's an all-pro corner for a reason. If he's going up against that kind of press coverage, does he have the physicality to break it? I'm not sure, but. You know, that's for his future wide receiver coach to handle. But there is a very, very solid group of guys behind Metcalf. Some would even put them ahead of Metcalf, depending on who we're talking about. Um, but in terms of value for day two receivers, there's probably going to be two or three of them going in the first round. But there's definitely going to be at least three to five left over in the second round that Buffalo can get because it's a very deep receiver class this year. Now, you mentioned the name A.J. Brown. Why do I keep seeing him pegged as an instant starter? And I'm going to throw a caveat into this. He might be an instant starter on some teams, but the book on him is that his route running is good, but he struggles to catch balls that aren't thrown with precise precise accuracy, which probably isn't something he's going to see a lot of if he's playing for Josh Allen right now. I think, and that's what's interesting, is he's got good hands when he looks the ball in. But, you know, if he's trying to go up and make kind of circus catches on things whizzing behind him, you know, like you look at Jarvis Landry, who's my comp for Brown. The, the, the big difference is that when Jarvis goes over the middle, if you just throw it within six feet of him in any direction, even if it's behind him, he's going to catch it. Brown, you got to lead him a little bit more. But in terms of body type, uh, yards after catchability, because he does kind of turn into a running back once he gets the ball in his hands, just like Jarvis, uh, willingness to block, uh, surprising deep speed if you do play him at Z a little bit. Like, he can kind of get that done, too. So uh, that's, like, the, the, the main knock on him is that you do have to lead him a little bit. He's not going to be able to adjust to everything. But I have a lot of uh, a lot of positive thoughts about AJ as a day-one starter in the slot. Again, not for every team. 
not every team's going to you know, see him as a fit in slot because maybe they want somebody with a little bit more um, shiftiness, like maybe the Julian mm-hmm. Edelman types. But for, there's a lot of teams out there that, that see A.J. as probably a 10-year starter in a slot. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the question because friend of the show, Dean Kindig, Okay, he, he writes a lot for BillsMafia.com. He's a he's a big draft guy. He's he's a draft. I think he works for DraftTech.com. He isn't high on Debo Samuel, and yet I've seen other people. I've I've heard other people echo his sentiment about how well Debo Samuel he has all these athletic traits, but they just don't show up on the field. Whereas some people in the draft community are in love with this guy and just think that it was University of South Carolina's shitty offense holding him back. Is he only? I see him being set up as a second round draft pick by a lot of different people. Is he a day two guy? And if so, what? I mean, what's your take on him as a future professional wide receiver? I've only done one game of his. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. Uh, I think it was the Clemson game where he. I mean, I, I do remember he had a shitload of catches. <laughs> so, um, but he had. I'm I'm still not entirely sure what to make of him, because you do see the athleticism show up a little bit in terms of once he's got the ball in his hands, but you know, to me, like the free, the truly freak athletes at wide receiver, like for instance, I'll, I'll give Metcalf as an example. They can really change up their speeds in the middle of a route and kind of play with corners that way. Um, it's not just about you know double moves or anything like that, but in terms of kind of slow playing releases and then bursting or you know maybe coming hard off the line and then faking like you're slowing up a little bit, like you're going to cut and then turning off the gas again. Like if you can really, if you're really a freak athlete with a lot of twitch in your lower body, you can really change up your route speeds and, and kind of play mind games with corners. I never really saw him do that. He's a very much a one-speed receiver, which bothered me a little bit. Um, again, once he's got the ball in his hand, ball in his hands, and instincts takes over, you really see the athleticism show up. But before before the catch, I'm I'm not sure if I'm seeing it. So I got to do more games. Uh, that was easily his most productive game of the year, I think. If I remember looking at his game logs correctly. Uh, I kind of want to start out with the, the the good games, and then go to the bad games. Mm-hmm. But just my my first impression was. Maybe he's going to be more of like that slot receiver slash offensive weapon kind of guy where you kind of rotate him into the running back spot, use him on special teams because he is a good athlete, but it just doesn't show up all the time. Before we let you go, real quick, I mean, because we're talking about the Buffalo Bills here. When you look at the lack of overall talent on offense in 2018, it's hard to know exactly what to make of what the playbook is even going to look like next season. You you had nothing to work with. Chris's favorite uh, analogy is that they called Brian Dable over. It's like they called Brian Dable over to their house to make cookies. And they said, hey, can you come over and make chocolate chip cookies? So he showed up and he said, here, I've got a great recipe. Let's see what you got. And they threw a bag of chocolate chips on the counter. And he said, okay, well, where's your flour and your sugar? Oh, we don't have those. <laughs> Do you have any eggs? <laughs> no, nah, we're out of those too. But make us cookies. That's what we did to him on offense last year. So I don't really know what his playbook truly looks like. What I do know is we've got a quarterback that lacks accuracy on swing and screen passes. We've had to revamp the entire offensive line, and I have no idea whether that'll gel or not. He has the arm power to challenge the deep and intermediate windows up the seam, deep down the field, and play-action designed rollouts are going to be heavily utilized. Given that, 
are there any wide receivers that just, hey, it, hey, Bills fans, watch out for these guys because they fit that style of play? Are there any that you think might help out a vertical passing game like ours? I mean, besides DK Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, besides yes. DK Metcalf. Yes. Damn it. <laughs> uh, Paris Campbell would be one to look at. Um, he's he's seen as more of like a Percy Harvin kind of receiver. Again, uh, almost like a, a better version of, you know, how I would describe Debo Samuel. You know, the guy you put it running back, you put him in the slot, you run gadget plays, you put him on special teams. You know, he's got the speed to threaten you deep, but really I kind of like him more in the slot. To me... Uh, because he's not the most polished route runner in the world, he's not terrible, but he's just not super polished for what I might look for in a traditional slot receiver. If I do play him inside, I would use that speed to my advantage and run him on, you know, drag routes, deep crosses, you know, get get Josh moving on a bootleg, get him out in space, and then have kind of Paris run with him on those drags or deep overs and let Josh throw it to him on the run and just give him the ball with a whole bunch of green grass in front of him because that's where that 4-3-1 really goes to work. They did that with uh, with Haskins a lot last year where they did, they put Paris in the slot, had him run a drag. Um, if it was man coverage, it would be pretty much an automatic 10-yard gain because how many slot corners can actually run with a 4-3-1 receiver? If it was zone, he would just settle it over the middle and again get an easy five yards. Like If you use him like that, not really like in, a, in an Edelman-style slot where he's running option routes, but just keep him moving in a straight line and really put that speed to use. I think he could be very effective in this system. Well, you know what? As always, we appreciate all of your contributions, Brett. You are a wealth of information. We love being able to pick your brain, and I love the fact that you took time out of your night to come join us. Now, folks... I still believe that DK Metcalf is not the wide receiver I want on my team. And if we take him at nine, I swear to God, Chris. Seagrams? It's, oh my God. It's not even going to be a Seagrams because I'm going to, I'm already going to have, it's going to be like Josh Allen all over again. It's going to be Josh Allen draft night all over again. But I'm going to be, but except in the United States where being nude on a balcony screaming drunkenly is illegal. (laughs) Apparently, Jamaica doesn't frown on that. Brett, why don't you tell the people where they can find your work, where they can find you on social media, and uh, talk a little bit about that DK video. Yeah, I uh, let's see. When did I put it out? I think I put it out like last Monday. Uh, I got Haskins coming out this Friday. Uh, again, he's a he's probably – obviously the Bills aren't going to take him, but if you're interested in, in Dwayne Haskins and maybe kind of comparing him to the quarterback he took last year, I think a lot of Bills fans might be interested in that. Um, so you can find me at Brett Coleman on YouTube. That is K O L L M A N N. I know it's the most German spelling ever, or if you just go on uh, YouTube, type in the film room, you'll probably see a whole bunch of my work pop up. Uh, and by the way, if you guys do take Metcalf, uh, please text me, uh, where you are. I will find the closest Domino's and buy you a pizza, uh, to console you. (laughs) And we don't have Domino's up here. Brett, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Go follow Brett on Twitter, at Brett Coleman. I have to remember to use the Jeff Jarrett way of saying his Twitter handle. It's B-R-E-T-T-K-O-L-L-M-A-N-N, Brett Coleman. Now, we didn't get to it because he had we were short on time, but we still got to go over the players that you like at wide receiver and tight end. Well, that's it. Every year, I have a couple people, and we all know I suck at this. I'm not great. I hate every draft that has been great for the Bills, and every draft that's been terrible, I've been a huge fan of. Therefore, my scouting is highly suspect. We 
Which is why we do this in the first place. <laughs> That's why we do this with experts in the first place. But with that said, wide receivers and tight ends, I've got a couple of my own that I happen to have a man crush on. First one, J.J. Arciaga-Whiteside, wide receiver out of Stanford. When you look at him, primarily a boundary wide receiver, I mean, if you think about it, a guy like him could free up Zay Jones and Cole Beasley to operate inside where they're a more natural fit because you don't want either one of those wide receivers playing on the boundary. I mean, last year we saw what Zay Jones gives us out there, and it's not much. He is a plus run blocker. He's got ability to improve if you put him in an NFL training program. He's just, he's a huge man with a naturally large catch radius, and he's a red zone mismatch. It's like a tight end, but with wide receiver speed. Now, I've seen comps on him to former Broncos and Jets wide receiver Eric Decker, and it's really easy to see why. I mean, he's a big wide receiver that can play outside. He can play inside. And while he's not a burner and doesn't have deep speed, he's physical enough that when you combine his great hands and just his gigantic catch radius, he can make plays on the ball anywhere, outside, in the intermediate level. Deep if you let him, if a slot cornerback is too small to match up with him. He himself presents a mismatch to the defense. And he, right now he's being targeted as something of a late second to early third round draft pick. Now, as we just got done talking with Brett, we're a team that has enough holes that spending premium draft capital on the wide receiver position just doesn't make sense. But this is a guy who could become an impact player for this offense and yet wouldn't cost you that first or high second round draft pick. And Chris, what do you think about that? I mean, if this guy can play the boundaries, I think I've heard Nate Geary talk a little bit about us next season running a lot of four wide receiver sets with Beasley and Zay Jones in the slot. So... I guess if we need a receiver, we need somebody on the outside. Absolutely. And this guy can do it. And I think the biggest thing for me when I'm looking at Arciago Whiteside, he has this catch radius and solid hands. He catches a lot of ridiculous balls that aren't the most accurately thrown. It sounds like he could work in our offense. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. He sounds like he might make sense for the Buffalo Bills. At the tight end position, I've got a guy. And his name is Jay Sternberger. SEC guy, tight end out of Texas A&M. When you look at him, he plays the tight end position like a wide receiver. Okay, I mean, I know everyone's going to say, well, we have Jason Kroom, and he was a wide receiver who's playing tight end. Not the way Jace does it. He's, he's more physical at the line of scrimmage, so you can trust him to be the occasional blocker. But he's got, the, he's got speed. That's the thing. Kroom doesn't have elite speed. Sternberger has it. He's fast enough to burn most linebackers at the NFL level. And because you saw it in college, he generated a ton of yards after the catch. And he's going to be a mid-round draft pick. Again, where I think the value for the Buffalo Bills really lies in terms of drafting any either one of these positions. Therefore, I look at Jason, I just think to myself, this is a guy who if you were to add him to this position group with, say, a fourth or fifth round draft pick, maybe in the third round, I wouldn't be angry about it. Because what you'd be getting is that spark plug, that seam threat at the tight end position that we just don't have right now. Another wide receiver I'm really fond of, Miles Boykin, 
wide receiver out of Notre Dame. Now, <laughs> this comes with a caveat, and that's that we can get him in the NFL weight room as soon as possible. Chris? What, is he like me? <laughs> no, he's like one of your favorite wide receivers ever to wear a Bills uniform. He's got incredible speed. He's six foot four, 220 pounds, but he ran a 4'4". It's a, it's a big man running very fast. And he was explosive athletically at the Combine. Major mismatch as a boundary-wide receiver because of his catch radius, because of his size. I mean, in college, he drew a ton of pass interference flags for Notre Dame. Just because he's huge. Smaller cornerbacks don't have a choice but to cheat on him. Because he's so big and he's so fast down the field. But, this is where the guy reminds me a little bit of James Hardy. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's he, dead. He does. <laughs> no, he's not dead. But he does struggle to get separation at the line of scrimmage. Which, when you look at the way he's built, it makes sense. He's a guy who has a very thin build in the lower body. You know what I mean? He's, 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 a, he's a long strider. If you put him on a 40-yard dash, he'll, he'll make up the yards. He's quick in a 40-yard dash. The problem is, is his power off the line, if you disrupt him, he may never recover and may not be able to get to top speed. That's what killed James Hardy. James Hardy was a fantastic talent coming out of Iowa. Or, no, what was it? Indiana. Indiana. Right. Sounds about Hoosiers. Right. He... So when I look at this guy, I'm reminded a lot of him, except I think he has more athletic upside. And I think that if you can get him in the weight room and you can get him in there with in an NFL training program with the right coaching staff, they can get him past the issues that will that if otherwise they're going to plague him because he's never going to be able to get off press coverage. It ruined James Hardy, Hardy's career. But as a mid-run draft pick, a guy like Miles Boykin wouldn't be the worst investment of draft capital in the entire world for this team. Because again, we talked with Brett about how deep threats, guys who can get open down the field, with Josh Allen's arm strength, that's a guy who would feast in a scheme like this. So if they were to make that investment, I wouldn't be angry about it. You know, somewhere in the third to fifth round range. And then there's Mecole Hardman. He is, Chris, I hate small wide receivers. Going back to the days of Roscoe Parrish, do I hate wide, small wide receivers? Don't we have enough of those already? <laughs> but none like Nico Hardman, okay? He's proven that he has special teams and offensive utility. He does not have size. He's 5'10, 187 pounds, but he's explosive, Chris. I mean, watching him play. He's not going to scare anybody in terms of a downfield passing threat. He doesn't have... At 5'10", even the smallest corners are bigger than you. Okay, that's it. So he's probably in an NFL offense. He's going to struggle at any time that he's pressed at the line of scrimmage. That's that's it. That's That's fair. And he doesn't... When you watch him play the wide receiver position, he doesn't have the refinement to his game... As far as like slick route running or you know quick feet to try to get away from press coverage or beat a lot of zone coverage, a lot of that stems from the fact that he played cornerback all the way until college, and then in college they're like, "Hey, you're fast. Let's see if we can make you a special teams player, and then maybe help out on offense a little bit." But with that said, you can't teach speed. 
and he's got a one metric fuck ton of it. Okay, picture Tyreek Hill type of agility and speed. Now, this is what is interesting about a guy like Hardman. And I, I guess that's why he's the last guy on this list of people I like. I shouldn't even say I like him more than I'm interested in him. Because when you see what the Chiefs were able to deal do with Tariq Hill, you know that NFL offensive coordinators are dying to get someone of their own that seems to fit that mold. This small wide receiver, but when you get him in the open, get him into open space and get the ball in his hands, he's dynamite. His lateral agility is out of control. I mean, he averaged over 20 yards per punt return on special teams in college. Chris, 20 yards per return. I'll take that because we haven't had a return game since like Terrence McGee. It's incredible the way the guy cuts. I watched him. I watched him in the Bama game, and he's a guy who absolutely can ruin your day. Even special teams as a returner, kick returner, punt returner. When he gets in the open field, he's got excellent vision. He's explosive laterally, which means he's going to force missed tackles. And when you get him in the open field, you have, you're, you're never going to catch him. If he's, if he's at your hip, he's already gone. Do you remember that, that returner for, uh, play for the Chiefs and the Rams? The human joystick, Dante Hall? <laughs> yes. Is, is that who we're talking about here? He seems very much like that. It's like a human joystick. But he's not very refined in his offensive game. But with that being said, there's no way to know where he's going to get drafted because of guys like Tariq Hill. Because of Tariq Hill, every offensive coordinator, like we talked about with Brett, everybody's chasing. You know, Tariq Hill was a third-round draft pick, and I think he fell because of some domestic violence issues. Yeah, off-the-field stuff. Off-the-field stuff. But with that said, every offensive coordinator sees what Tariq Hill is doing right now and wants one of their own. You know what I mean? It's Chris, how many times as a kid did you see somebody with a cool toy and you wanted it? Oh, Jesus. Um I don't probably not that often. <laughs> I, I mean, forget you grew I up mean, in Atlanta. I mean, maybe for you, I mean you're in North Collins. You probably I can I bet your dad like just cut up trash bags and put rocks on the corners and that was your slip and slide. Oh my god. I I can't wait till he fights you when he sees you. It's gonna be great. <laughs> so when I look at Miko Hardman. I have no idea where he's going to go in this draft, but I'm, I mean, with a guy with his explosive upside, you know he's going to get overdrafted. That's my fear, but I would love him for this Buffalo Bills team in 2018. Guys, the wide receiver and tight end positions, they're skill positions. But that said, they are luxuries. At the end of the day, if, if the Super Bowl this year taught us anything, it's that you could have all of the passing offense in the entire world, but at the end of the day, you win and lose football games in the trenches. That's where this last Super Bowl, between the two best teams in football, was won and lost, was in the trenches. And between the ears at quarterback, but that's beside the point. <laughs> the trenches did a lot of the heavy lifting in that game. And so with that, I think that the Buffalo Bills would absolutely... Be remiss if they were to prioritize skill positions over what we have in the trenches. That being said, there's a lot of talent at these positions in this draft. The Bills are going to have to address it at some point. Because right now, Chris, yes, we're happy about the signings of Beasley. We're happy about the signings of Brown. Because it's better than where we came from. I just lo- But I- that's like saying 
You moved to Buffalo from Alaska, and you're happy about the weather. Wow, the weather here is so much better. Yeah, well, you haven't seen Florida, okay? Well, I don't want us taking a wide receiver because, look, our offensive line last year was bad. And I think based on free agency so far, we just we ripped off an old Band-Aid and just put a fresh Band-Aid on. Outside of Mitch Morse and Deion Dawkins, I don't think anybody here on the line is here long term. So I would not want a wide receiver at nine if if if, if you get that was it Taylor from from uh, Florida if he's available at nine. If there's anybody in the trenches, look at the defensive tackle group. We still have one of the weakest in our own division. It's not where we want to be. There are things that need to be fortified up front first before we can really focus on spending high draft capital on luxuries. We're not there yet, Bills fans. We will be soon, but we're not there yet. So come this draft, I firmly, I firmly expect that these middle rounds and some of these lesser known names are going to become really important to us. So make sure you pay attention and thank you for tuning in. Guys, once again, where can they find Brett Coleman's work? Uh, he is at youtube.com slash Brett Coleman. Watch his videos. I think that DK Metcalf video he did is already over 170,000 views. And then he's also on Twitter at Brett Coleman. B-R-E, double T, K-O, double L, M-A, double N. And then next week, another skill position. Already confirmed. We're going to have Matt Waldman on from the Rookie <laughs> Scouting Portfolio. We're going to talk running backs next week. Because we got we, we got two 35-year-old Old-ass running backs. Our running backs are almost as old as the woman who rear-ended me this week. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What are we doing here? Chris, we got to go. Folks, if you don't like my take on the fact that we don't draft DK Metcalf on uh, at pick number nine, go ahead at me, at Rockpile Report on Twitter. But, Chris, we got to go. Thank you all so much for showing up. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. We'll see you all next week because this has been the Rockpile Report. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.